How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensi. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's going fantastic, and we've got a fantastic show for everyone coming up, so I hope you all have a good day as well. We are going to have a great episode today, and we got a great guest on the line. Our guest today is a former NHL forward whose career spent 14 seasons following being drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs ninth overall in 1979. His career had him suit up in over 1,000 games with five different franchises, including the expansion Ottawa Senators. Please welcome to the show the inaugural captain of your Ottawa Senators, Lori Boschman. Lori, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Very good. Uh, hi, Taylor and Tim. Uh, thanks for having me. So we got to start off by asking... How's your day been going? Well, you know what? It's beautiful here right now in uh, in Ottawa, in sunny Ottawa, and got back from church and was just doing some yard work. And so I uh, took some time out to get up here and make sure I didn't miss the podcast, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Whereabouts in Ottawa are you uh, residing nowadays? We uh, we live in a town called Greeley, which is just, uh, it's a part of Ottawa, but it's just in the south end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tim, do you have any idea where that is in Ottawa? If I remember correctly, it's past Farhaven. Yeah, okay. that's right. You're right. Yeah, because my <laughs> co-host Tim Jesse spent some time living in Ottawa a couple of years ago. So okay. any anytime that we have anybody on the show from Ottawa, I always look at him like, where exactly in the city is that, Tim? Is that yeah. in the city? Is it out of the city? Yeah. You know? yeah. So now, Laura, before we get into anything related to your hockey career, I'd actually like to start by asking, what does a day in the life of Lori Boschman look like in 2022? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Taylor, it's it's been a little bit different, obviously, for most of us, right, in this COVID period, because that's what we are. Um, my main job is with Hockey Ministries International. I'm the Ontario Director for HMI, and we do a variety of things from hockey camps to chapels uh, right across the hockey landscape. And of course, the last two summers, we have we we are still running hockey camps, but uh, because I live in Ontario here, we have kind of been stranded. We can't travel down to the States and we haven't been, we've been really locked down in Ontario here out of all the Canadian provinces. I think uh, Doug Ford in Ontario has, has been sort of the uh, most restrictive that I can uh, recall just from the news and stuff over the past two years. So mostly what we do now is we'll facilitate our meetings through uh, Zoom, through Microsoft meetings. And uh, I gave up my office two years ago at the start of COVID because uh, I couldn't actually um, go there anyway. So, uh, so my office is upstairs now in our home, which is just fine. And so, so it's basically, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, coming up to the office and uh, I spend lots of time on uh, telephone calls and Zoom meetings and a variety of things like that that's associated with what we do with hockey, with Hockey Ministries International, and, uh, and also... I am also the uh, the president of Ottawa Senators Alumni Association, and we haven't been that active, obviously, in the last two years, but uh, we're hopefully hope, hoping that that's going to pick up in the fall this year, uh, just with everything opening up and hopefully COVID's under control by September and uh, there's no more lockdowns. Well, we're talking about your role with Hockey Ministries International, and that's something I actually want to bring up because nowadays with social media, you see that religion plays a big part in a lot of players' lives. And... I wanted to know, like, what during your career, was this more or less common that you saw players being very religious? Yeah, it's back, obviously, I started, Taylor, before you and the, you and Tim <laughs> were born back in 79, I started with the Leafs, and, and it was uncommon. There, there weren't too many hockey players that identified as being 
uh, uh, faith-based or being born-again Christians. Uh, there wasn't very many of us at, at all at the time. Uh, you know, guys like names you might be familiar with in Mike Gartner and Ryan Walter and Stu Grimson and Mark Osborne and Jean Pronovo and some of those early names that were believers that played hockey. And, you, you know, fast forward 30 years and it's... Um, the activity in our chapel programs, we have we have chapel programs in uh, just about every hockey league from uh, you guys are out west, the Western Hockey League, the Ontario Hockey League, the Quebec uh, Junior League. We have at the NHL as part of what uh, that's my responsibility. And and we have them in, in a variety of leagues um, uh, right across the hockey landscape. We have uh, the chapel programs in Europe. All that to say is that there is an interest. It's all player-driven, Tim and Taylor. So as a result of being player-driven, there's interest at that level. And there's probably far more interest at the junior and the American Hockey League level uh, than the NHL level. Although I will say there is tremendous interest at, at the NHL level. But uh, for example, we could get up to three quarters to half a team in the Ontario Hockey League or the American Hockey League, where at the NHL level, we're getting anywhere from four to, you know, four mm -hmm. to six players uh, as far as uh, coming to a chapel program. So all that to say is there is uh, interest. It's all player driven. And it's uh, part of what we do uh, to uh, to help facilitate, uh, you know, from a Bible based perspective, because uh, those of us uh, who are involved in, in the ministry and the organization, uh, we've played hockey, we understand some of the challenges. And so we try and give the players that perspective from a Bible based perspective. Right. So do you think that as the socioeconomic diversity of the NHL has grown over the last 40 years, that there has been many different types of people entering the game that might be more receptive to the word of the Lord? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. Uh, I think what's what's happened is you see what happens is as as the you know, as these players that get, say, to the NHL, which is the apex, right? That's yeah. where everyone's trying to get, you know, they, they play hockey in their communities. And there are these programs for these young players in their communities. And so they might check them out and see what it's like. And they might think, well, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I have an interest in God. I have an interest in, you know, in faith. I have a background, maybe, um, you know, often, oftentimes uh, uh, an individual might have a faith-based background, but they really don't know a lot about their faith. And so as a result of these chapel programs, it's a safe place for players to ask questions about, you know, some existential uh, kind of things about God, faith, you know, does, uh, does God care about us? Uh, you know, what happens, uh, you know, why does evil happen? Why is uh, someone we love sick? You know, those kinds of questions. And does the Bible speak to these? And so we get a chance to unpackage some of those questions in a very safe place for these, uh, for these athletes. What do you feel with the amount of current players nowadays from Matt Duchesne to Carey Price being very religious, being very open about it? Do you see that players are now seeing that and being like, okay, maybe this is something that maybe I should look into? Yeah, it's been happening a long time, Taylor. So even before those, uh, those players, uh, you, you know, even before sort of like the Mike Fishers and, and some of those players who were quite outspoken about their faith, uh, I, I think uh, there's been an awareness within the, the locker room and 
you know, players, uh, sometimes we have players that are very consistent uh, that come out to the program quite a bit. And then we have others that check it out and will uh, come hit and miss because of course, uh, you know, an athlete's life at the, these various stages, they have different commitments and, and those kinds of things. So sometimes they're not always able to commit to every time that we have a, have a chapel for them. So as mentioned off the top, you were selected ninth overall by the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1979, following your WHL career with the Brandon Wheat Kings. And I find regardless of what team you cheer for, it's, it is hard to argue the impact that the Toronto Maple Leafs has had in the history of the National Hockey League from their championships to just the countless Hall of Famers that they've produced. What was it like when you got the news that Toronto took you in the draft? Well, it was it was kind of exciting, Taylor. Like uh, I was, uh, you know, as, as a youngster growing up in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, I spent nine years in each of those provinces, and of course played with the Brandon Wheat Kings, as you mentioned at the outset. We only had, you know, back in our era, we didn't have the internet, of course, and we only had two channels. So uh, my dad was a Boston Bruin fan, so I hated the Montreal Canadiens because my dad hated the Montreal Canadiens, and they were really good. And uh, so I grew up as a Boston Bruin fan, as a Bobby Orr, a Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, uh, you know, Derek Sanderson, these kinds of, um, you know, individuals. So when I got drafted by the Leafs, of course, when you're playing junior hockey, you're just absolutely thrilled that you can do what you love. And we had a really good team in Brandon playing with Brian Propp and Ray Ellison were my line mates. And, and when I had the opportunity to get drafted, I didn't really care who drafted me. It was just a chance to really try and you know, see if I could play at the NHL level, uh, which I never really thought I would, or I never really thought I was good enough, but uh, that was something. So when I got picked by, uh, by Toronto, it was uh, like absolutely fascinating. And uh, I, of course I knew who all the players were at that time, you know, Daryl Sittler and, and uh, Ronnie Ellis, Tiger Williams, Boreas Salming, some of those great Maple Leaf players. And the teams were really good right uh, back in those years. And uh, so to go to Toronto and play with the Leafs or to try and make the team. And then when I, when I actually made the team and called my parents, of course, you guys will find this, I think, rather funny, uh, from a payphone to call my parents collect, because we didn't have uh, cell phones back in the, in the day, uh, was, was really, um, uh, you know, was really memorable. And of course, uh, the old Maple Leaf Gardens was a historic building like the Montreal Forum and the Boston Gardens and the Olympia in Detroit and those kinds of old buildings. So it, it, it truly was, as you hear some players describe a dream come true, it really was. Well, now you hear a lot nowadays with players and they talk about how their player agent would hear from other teams. Well, okay, you may go here, you may go there. Did you have any idea that Toronto was going to be the team that was going to select you in the end? Yeah, I, I did not, Taylor. Like back in 1979, and, and you may be aware of the history of the NHL, but at that time there was a rival World Hockey Association and the World Hockey Association disbanded in the summer of 1979. And so Ed, Edmonton, Quebec, Winnipeg and Hartford became 18, 19, 20 and 21 teams in the NHL because there was 17 at the time. So so the NHL absorbed those four teams and that was the first year for an underage draft. And so that's why I was drafted. I was an underage player at 18 years old. And so uh, I got, uh, you know, drafted and I was with, when I found out I was getting drafted, I was with Canada's Olympic program uh, in the summer of 1979, because uh, if you guys will uh, remember, maybe you've, you've seen, seen the movie, the miracle on ice when the U S uh, beat the, um, beat the Russians and, and won the Olympic gold in, I think it was in February in Lake Placid in 1980. The hockey playing world used amateur players at the time. 
And so I got a call after the Memorial Cup was over to come and try out for Team Canada before I got drafted. So I was in Calgary, Alberta for training camp for the Olympic program when I found out that I was drafted by the Leafs. And uh, so I had no idea that the Leafs were going to pick me because they didn't do back in 79. That was a, a bit of an aberration. They didn't do what they do today where they bring the players and the agents and all that to the you know, to the city or the building where they're going to hold the draft. And then everybody, you know, they call your name and you walk down to the front and all that kind of stuff. So in 1979, they didn't do that because of the Olympics and because of, of the expansion draft. And that year where there was only a six, six rounds uh, that they had that year. And uh, Rob Ramage was the number one pick that year. Well, and I think that you failed to mention that the pick before you was Ray Bork going to Boston. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I, I, I tell everyone, I, I'm just, Harry Sinden was the general manager back then, and I was saying, boy, Harry Sinden is sure glad that uh, whoever gave him the advice, they took Ray Bork and not Laurie Boschman. <laughs> you think it would have been a little more special to get drafted by Boston, given that your old man was a Boston fan? Yeah, exactly. That would have been, uh, you know, I. but it didn't matter who I was drafted with. Uh, I knew who all the players were anyway, so, uh, you know. Now, I know that you mentioned a few players uh, from Daryl Sittler to Tiger Williams. One guy, especially in that era of the Toronto Maple Leafs, that always brings up is Harold Ballard. And right. even 30-plus years after his death, I mean, Harold Ballard's one of those guys, he's still brought up as being one of those one of the most infamous owners in hockey right. history. And I know that when you played for them, he was very critical of your born-again Christianity. What was that like to play for an owner like Harold Ballard? Yeah, well, it was very difficult, uh, Taylor, because, of course, because of the nature, it's such a public form, right? You know, back then, obviously, this is, you know, pre-internet, so everything was on uh, the newspapers, right? Everything was broadcast in the newspapers or on the news that night during the sportscast. So, you know, when you're criticized because, you know, by the owner of a National Hockey League team because you're not playing well because it's you know, he believed it was my Christianity that was holding me back. Or in his terms, he said, I've got too much religion. I mean, that's very difficult because I was uh, 20 years old at the time when he said that. And uh, it, it, you know, th those kinds of things not only went out across the airwaves in Toronto where I played, but that went right across the National Hockey League in every one of those 21 cities. But not only that, you know, it went across Canada. And, uh, and so it, it, it was uh, very difficult to have someone criticize your faith for, you know, being the reason why you're not playing well, when before, uh, you know, I had mononucleosis and I was out for uh, two and a half months because I had blood, blood poisoning and different things. So there were some other reasons, other mitigating reasons that maybe the general public wouldn't have known unless you were a diehard Leaf fan and you knew that those were the reasons or could have been the reasons why I wasn't playing well. So it's never good when somebody criticizes you and it's never good when your boss or your owner criticizes you in a public manner. So uh, that was very difficult at the time. Well, I can only imagine like Ballard seems like one of these guys who he would just, he would have a grudge against a player for almost seems like no reason. I, I think you look at his issues with Daryl Sittler and the whole thing with the union, right. but I want to move along here and talk about, your tenure with the Edmonton Oilers, because in March of 82, you were traded to the Edmonton Oilers where you spent two or parts of two seasons. Now, the one person I've got to ask regarding that time, Wayne Grosky, because right. this isn't like you weren't playing with Wayne Grosky at the end of his career where he was slowing down. Right. You were playing with Wayne in the early 80s when like every single NHL record got broken one after the other. I mean, 
I got asked, what was that like day after day to watch and play with a guy like Wayne Gretzky? Yeah, well, it was absolutely incredible, uh, Taylor, because one of the one of the reasons was, is, uh, you, you know, and there there were many other uh, uh, supporting cast members who were very, you know, very good as well. And, you know, Messier and Anderson and Yari Curry and Paul Coffey and, you know, some of these individuals as well. But, you know, Gretzky at the time was at the apex of, well, you know, he, he was just beginning really his his career, but still he was getting 200 points a year. And he was absolutely incredible and, uh, you know, very good teammate. He was very good to the rest of us. I just uh, felt it was, you know, great. And I think one of the, one of the, one of the things I think about is, is there were some times, and this just doesn't happen where, you know, we're all in our 22, 23 years old at that particular time in 82. And, you know, Wayne is the same age as I am. And in fact, I'm about six months or so. Uh, I think he's uh, a January birthday, I believe. And, uh, but uh, anyways, he made some moves at times on some players from the other team that our whole bench would get up and we'd put our sticks over the boards and bang our sticks on the boards. Like it was kind of like, you know, like minor hockey sometimes when somebody undresses somebody uh, it, and you don't, you just didn't see that in the NHL. And so, you know, Wayne was uh, an exceptional player, arguably one of the best who's, you know, who's ever played the game holds just massive amounts of record. Uh, records, uh, you know, in the NHL now, of course, uh, you know, with Ovechkin chasing the the goal record, which is kind of interesting because there's a chance he could do it if he, if, you know, if he continues to produce the way he's doing and he continues to stay healthy. And, and that generates a lot of excitement, I think, in the game of hockey. But, uh, you know, you look at Wayne Gretzky's points and then the next player who's next to him, which I think is Yager. And, and, and like, he's like got like a 2000 point lead. I mean, it's just... Uh, I believe he was in a, in, in, in a category of his own. Now, saying that, Mario Lemieux was an exceptional player. You know, one-on-one, -on -one, big, great moves, everything like that. Didn't have as much a supporting cast as, as Wayne did in, in Edmonton. But, uh, you know, still, I think, uh, I, I think he delivered uh, two Stanley Cups, I think, in Pittsburgh, uh, Mario did. And he's got three as an owner. And uh, so, uh, I, I mean, and, and, you know, Bobby Orr was my favorite player growing up and Phil Esposito, Phil Esposito couldn't skate very well, but he stood in front of the net and people fed him and he could score goals. But Bobby Orr revolutionized the, the way defensemen play hockey with skating and offensive players like himself and Doug Harvey, or I should even say Doug Harvey first. And then Bobby Orr uh, were defensemen never used to rush like that. And so, you know, so there's a lot of great players, Gordie Howe. Uh, I mean, I can tell you guys that as a 19-year-old in Toronto, uh, when I broke in, Gordie Howe was as old as my father. He was 52 years old playing with the Hartford Whalers with his sons, Mark and Marty. So I, I played a year of hockey against Gordie Howe. I played three games against him that year. So, you know, absolutely incredible. There's some great, um, uh, you know, players who have played this game. And of course, just recently, you know, unfortunately, we've heard of a couple that have just recently passed away in Guy Lafleur and Mike Bossy. And of course, I played with Dale Howarchuk, who passed away last year. So some, um, you know, some real titans of the game of hockey have recently passed away. But when they were in their prime, they were just exceptional players. Well, and I don't know you mentioned that you played with Dale Howarchuk. And I feel like Dale's one of these guys who over the years, he's been grossly overlooked because of Gretzky playing in the same division. Right. Like how different was that playing with a guy like Howard Chuck than a guy like Gretzky? 
Well, well, they were different, different players, but they were both very gifted offensively. Like they had different offensive skills. Uh, and, and again, I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to say this, they were different players, extremely gifted, you know, both uh, hockey hall of famers, which means you're in the elite of elite. Um, but I, I would suggest too, that, uh, that Wayne had a better supporting cast than uh, Dale had, uh, of those of us slugs in Winnipeg, uh, and myself included, but we, we did have very good teams there in Winnipeg for the, the years that I was in the Smythe division. That's what they used to call it, uh, with Calgary, Edmonton, Los Angeles, ourselves in, in, in Edmonton. And the seven years I was there, six of the seven years, the Stanley Cup champion came from that division. So you had to beat either the Oilers or Calgary because Calgary won it one year uh, in that division. So we had very good teams with Howard Chuck and, and, and McLean and Mullen and Thomas Steen and Babbage and, you know, players like this. But we could just never beat the Oilers. That was, you know, we could take them to game seven, but we could never beat them. And that was sort of that's been something that ha has been something that has been disappointing, you know, when you look back on your career, but uh, unfortunately I was never a part of a Stanley cup champion team, but uh, I look back with fondness on, on some of the battles we had against uh, those Edmonton or other teams. Well, do you feel that the Winnipeg Jets of that era could have been a Sears cup contender had Edmonton Calgary not been in that division? Well, of course, yeah, of course I believe that, but you know, again, everything is, you know, you have to, you have to prove it right yet. Yeah, it's demonstrated ability, but there's no question. We had very good teams. Uh, you know, the old spike division, there was a lot of goals scored. So games were one, six, four, eight, six, five, three, you know, and they had a hall of fame goaltender in grand fear as well. So that didn't hurt when they took lots of chances. Edmonton took lots of chances. And so they had, they had offense, they had, you know, pretty good defense. And then they had one, you know, if not the two best goalies, Andy Moog and, and Grant Fuhr uh, in the NHL, the, you know, the sort of one of the top tandems, if you would, in the NHL. And so I think that's why they, you know, that's part of the reason why they won five, five Stanley Cups, uh, along with Gretzky and Messier and Anderson and <laughs> Curry. So one, one final note I want to make here about Edmonton, and I know that you mentioned Harold Ballard with Toronto. Peter Pockington is another guy. As Oiler, as Edmonton Oilers owner at the time, I mean, you want to talk about a guy that was so beloved in this city right up until he traded Gretzky in 88. Right. I mean, what was that like going from an owner like Harold Ballard who basically had grudges with everybody to Peter Pockington who was so loved by the players, but also would put so much money into that team to win? Yeah. Well, I, I you know what, Taylor, I don't know if back in the day, really any of the owners really put any extra money in towards the players but Peter Pocklington used to do things like incentivize the playoffs for the players and uh, you know owners back in those days didn't do that and so so in that way he 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 was uh, a very pro player compared to uh, you know, Harold Ballard, who was not that way at all. So, uh, so yeah, uh, Peter Pocklington kind of stayed away if you would, but Glenn Sather and John Muckler were the two people that kind of ran, uh, ran the ship and ran the show. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and I think, yeah, it was quite a, quite a, quite a contrast. There's no question about that. Now, Throughout your NHL career, your best remembered is a Winnipeg Jet where you played from 1983 to 1990, recording three 60 plus point seasons. And I was just mentioning this a minute ago here, like the Jets at that time, it seems like despite the talent on the roster, it couldn't make a deep playoff run with Gretzky and everybody in that division. 
overall, like what was your experience like playing in a very small yet passionate market like Winnipeg? Oh, it just, it, it's great. I have to tell you guys that Winnipeg is a great market. I was so pleased when they, uh, when Atlanta moved north to, uh, uh, if you would, back to Winnipeg, because it's a very passionate uh, marketplace. Uh, you know, you know, you get all of Manitoba, it's Manitoba's team, not just Winnipeg, even though, of course, the majority of people are in the Winnipeg, but people come from, you know, sort of uh, eastern Saskatchewan to be, uh, you know, or season ticket holders. And so they make that drive down the road. Uh, there's people from all over that uh, support that hockey club. And so it's fantastic. It's a great hockey market. Uh, two of our three kids were born there. And I, I have just nothing but fond memories of Winnipeg and and the people and uh, the fans of, uh, you know, of the Jets. They're, they're still a very passionate group of people. Well, and especially nowadays when they came back in 2011, you see how passionate of a fan base it is, despite playing in that very small market. And we did mention Dale Howardchuck here. Another guy I want to bring up is Thomas Steen, because Steen seems like one of these guys, like a very underrated center, especially when you see some of his stats. Talk to us a little bit about Thomas Steen. Like, what kind of a player was he like? Thomas was outstanding. You're right. And I think, you know, I, I, I think what you say is accurate. He was underrated. And of course, in Winnipeg, you know, some of the Canadian cities were a little bit like, I think a lot of people in the American marketplace back in the, in the 80s, they didn't even know where Winnipeg was. Uh, you know, they knew it was in Canada, but they didn't even know where, where it was. So uh, Winnipeg was kind of overlooked a little bit like that, you know, uh, you know, maybe like Carolina is today and Carolina's got a great hockey club, but sometimes, you know, in the Canadian market, you, you kind of, you know, Washington, Carolina, those kinds of things you don't really think, although Washington's won a Stanley cup now. Um, but Thomas Steen was a great two-way player, very skilled, just an integral part of that team. But oftentimes, you know, you can, you can be overlooked by the fact that you've got a player such as Dale Howard Chuck, but you, you, you know, you need, you need to be deep down the middle and you need to have a couple of real producing centermen because if, if, if everybody's checking line plays against the top unit all the time, uh, it just makes it that much more difficult, right? For that top unit to, uh, to compete. So you've got to have some secondary scoring and Thomas Dean provided that uh, uh, in Winnipeg. Yeah. Well, even in when uh, nearing the end of your run in Winnipeg, the Jets drafted Timo Solani. At the time, mm-hmm. it took a couple of years before Timo would come over. Was there any feeling in that locker room after drafting him? Like, is this guy ever going to come over? Uh, you know, as a, as a player, you know, we didn't really think about that um, because, you, you, you know, sometimes these players that get drafted, you never know if they're going to turn out to be the players that the media says they will, right? And it, it just depends where you fit on the roster. If that person is competing for your job, you're kind of hoping they stay. <laughs> they stay in Europe a little longer. And Timo Solani was not a centerman, so I didn't have to worry about that. But uh, he lived up to all, all the fanfare. Uh, he was a goal scorer, a great player, fan favored, and you know had a Hall of Fame career. So, uh, so uh, those kinds of things are not something that players think about too much because you know once a player comes comes to camp, it's different than playing with your club teams in Europe or playing in the American Hockey League or playing junior hockey. You know, the NHL is the best league in the world and, you know, with the best players, the fastest, the biggest, the strongest, all that kind of stuff. So, um, it, you know, some sometimes those players that are highly touted do not turn out to be quite as 
um, you know, uh, quite as exceptional as they think they might be. And of course, oftentimes they do. Well, do you ever, during his, when he actually came over to the NHL, do you ever look at this, bl that blade he used to use and be like, how do you use a blade like that? It looked like he was using goalie paddle instead of an yeah. actual blade. Yeah, yeah, and and we used to say that about about Gretzky. Gretzky used this Titan stick, and 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 the curve the curve on it was like this, so it would never get called if if anyone ever wanted to call his stick for too much curve, which which was around a half inch at the time. But the stick was heavy, and you know we used to tease him and say, "You are the great one if you can use a stick like this." <laughs> and you know it was a low lie. It was about a, 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 a you know a five lie. So it you know the stick was a little bit down. And, and Gretz used to skate crouch down and stuff like that. So so yeah, there's some pretty interesting um, you know equipment that the players use. But obviously they're they're accustomed to it. They're used to it, and it might be different than the rest of us. But obviously it didn't impact those players for sure. So Tim Stutzla's tape job is just par for the course for star players. It, it totally, it's just a little bit different. He, you know, you wonder what, like, it, you know what, it's, it's the same uh, Tim as, as what Bobby Orr used to do. Bobby Orr used to do like three, you know, three rounds of tape on the, and it's kind of like, why does he even bother? Right. Uh, but that's, that's what these, uh, some of these players like to do. And that's just the way they keep going. Well, so especially some of the tape jobs they have now, like even David Pasternak has like the one where he has the crisscross on the blade. It's just like, okay, don't know how you can use it, but yeah, exactly. It works for him. Exactly. Now I know that when talking about Winnipeg and we talked about the playoffs where the Jets could make the, the deep runs, 1990 seems like a year that if any year the Jets were going to go far, that was going to be it because Gretzky wasn't with LA. And then of course, Gretzky was to LA docks off Calgary. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, I think Winnipeg went up 3-1 against the Oilers in that playoff series, and the Oilers won in seven games. Is that the one playoff series that the Jets look at and be like, if any year we're going to do it, that was going to be it? I, I, I think I think that's it, uh, Taylor, when you, you know, looking back, um, we actually thought we had them at home. And uh, we had them down. They came back and won. I think uh, Yari Curry got the goal. Then uh, I believe we went back to Edmonton and uh, I, I think they might have blown us out if I recall and then they come back to win no no it was the, it was the opposite sorry we we won there Curry came back and, and, and scored a goal came back to Winnipeg they they blew us out and game seven uh, back in Edmonton stuff you, you know they uh, they they beat us and uh, yeah we we really thought we had an opportunity to 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 move to the to the next round because we did uh one year there we we did beat um uh, you know, Calgary. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, I think Edmonton was happy that we beat them because Calgary and, and, um, and, and Edmonton had a pretty fierce rivalry as well, of course, being the Battle of Alberta, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how different was it playing against Calgary than it was Edmonton? Because, of course, Calgary didn't have Gretzky, but Calgary had a very, very talented and very deep team in the 80s. Yeah. Well, again, all, you know, in the playoffs, there's so many intangibles, Taylor, like there, you know, it's like goaltending is the power play going to, you know, get some goals, uh, uh, you know, are, are, are some of the players that you don't expect to contribute, are they going to contribute more? So it, it really turns out to be a team game, uh, you, you know, but any one of those teams, uh, obviously, you know, Edmonton was the, uh, turned out to be, they proved to be the, um, uh, you know, the cream of, uh, of the smite division, but, uh, you know, I, I believe that, uh, 
ourselves in Calgary were, you know, pretty close, but we never could tell how good we would be because we had to get out of the smite division or in order to compete. Right. And uh, we could, we could never do that. So final question I have regarding that division and the LA Kings were a part of it a long time. Did you ever look at those purple and gold jerseys they wore and be like, Oh, those are brutal. <laughs> you know, not, not, not so much because they had some really good players and, you know, Marcel Dion and Charlie Simmer and Dave Taylor and, uh, and uh, Kelly Rudy and stuff. So we never, we never really thought too much about that. We just thought, you know what, they're bright and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was always nice to go to California when you're, you know, in, in the prairies in the wintertime. It was a nice reprieve from the weather. So we didn't mind going there. And of course, the form, the old form was a nice place to play too in Inglewood. Yeah. Is there ever a jersey that you looked at and you're like, I'm glad I never had to wear that on national television? You know, not, 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 not really. I mean, there's, there's some third jerseys that are pretty interesting nowadays, but we didn't, they didn't have third jerseys and different things like that. Uh, they didn't market, you know, the teams in the game quite like they do today, but uh, there are some, you know, some really unique ones for sure. But I mean, you know, as players, I think some of the outdoor games and stuff, they bring some old fashioned jerseys out, which I think are quite interesting. They're very kind of cool because some of those teams wore them in the twenties and, in the thirties. And, and, and I think they're, I think some of them are very cool. And of course, being a, you know, as a kid, being a fan of the Bruins and stuff, I, I love some of their old fashioned jerseys and stuff. So yeah, it, I, I can't really say that that, that was the case in my, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in my uh, sort of uh, history at hockey. Mm. Well, speaking about the outdoor game jerseys and the senators were in two of them. Like what was your thought on the O Sens jerseys? Yeah, I really like them. Yeah, it's it's what our alumni wears right now, but uh, we're going to transition back to the cresting that we used uh, actually year one with the Senators. Uh, we're we're going to do that for next year, but uh, I, I really like the O. I, I just think it's it's different. It's back, you know, when the Senators were winning, you know, guys, the Senators won, I, I think it was like 11 Stanley Cups, like their names on there for winning 11 Stanley Cups. And those are the jerseys that they wore back in the day uh, when they were Stanley Cup champions. You see some old pictures of it. So it's kind of cool. Oh, the old silver sevens. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are great jerseys. Now for as long as you played in hockey crazy markets, like the Toronto and Winnipeg, like we're talking about, I yeah. imagine going to some place like New Jersey would be such a culture shock given that Jersey at the time was still trying to establish themselves as a team, but also you're in a state where the New York giants just came off winning a super bowl a few years prior. Yeah. What was that transition like for yourself going from Canadian markets to New Jersey? Yeah, it was, it was certainly different, but you know, we really liked it. My wife and I, and we had three boys. Uh, we really liked it because you could kind of get lost in New Jersey. There was a select fan base uh, around the old Brendan Byrne arena. Uh, now they're at the Prudential Center down in downtown Newark, but back at the time they were at East Rutherford, uh, which is uh, closer to New York city. And people would have to come out there, uh, uh, you know, devil's fans and stuff like that. And so that it was a selected marketplace. And so when you're, when you're not playing hockey, you could go shopping, you could go to the restaurants, you could do all that stuff in, in complete anonymity, which I wasn't used to for the first 10 years of my career, because that that's not the case in any Canadian city as an NHL player, you cannot get lost in the city. People know who you are because they love hockey and, you know, people have a tendency to, to go, Hey, is that, you know, is that Taylor Gibson there? Is that Tim Jensey? You know, like that kind of thing. Right. So, 
So you can't get lost. So, so we really like that because it gave us a glimpse of what it's going to be like when hockey is over. And so my wife and I really liked that. So um, it, it was nice to play in, in, in New Jersey, you just came ready to play. And Lou Lamorello was our general manager at the time. And, and Lou is a, a great general manager to play for. And um, we, we really enjoyed that experience. It was different, but we really enjoyed it. Well, definitely when you talk about Lou Lamorello today, you definitely hear a lot of stories from the ex-Devil players about how structured everything was and how much of an iron fist he has. Was that like that when Lou Lamorello was the GM back in the day? Well, yeah, Lou, Lou is very much uh, in control of the hockey clubs that he manages. There's no question about that, and there's no doubt about it. But, you, you know, Lou, Lou is not as, uh, as ruthless as, you know, you, you, you just described. He's a very astute hockey person and uh you know he's had uh, lots of success at the nhl level and of course college before at uh, providence college and uh i personally uh, like lou lamorello uh and his uh, management style and skills very much so but uh, but of course you know there would be players uh, that you could talk to i'm sure that would uh, you, you know, that would, uh, would say otherwise as well. But, uh, I think for the most part, Lou is fair. If you play hard for him, uh, and, and you work hard and do stuff in the community, uh, you know, Lou is, is very, uh, uh, is just a great person to play for. Well, definitely when talking about the state of New Jersey, and this is more related to the New York giants where you hear a lot of their ex players end up retiring in the state. Um, I'm not too sure how close you still are with a number of your teammates in New Jersey, but how many of those guys have retired in New Jersey? They've got a, they've got quite a strong alumni uh, as well uh, in in uh, New Jersey. Taylor um, Chico Resch is a good friend of mine, and actually he's uh, he's coming tomorrow. Uh, he'll be here in Ottawa because the Devils play here Tuesday. So Chico is is will be staying with us like he normally does, unless I'm traveling and I'm not traveling right now. So. Uh, uh, they have a pretty strong uh, uh, alumni association there. There's a number of players that played there. Uh, you know, Jim Dodds, uh, Bruce Driver, uh, Chico, um, Kenny Danico, uh, Scott Stevens. Some of those guys who won the cup in that area have stayed there. And uh, they, they have a fairly, uh, a, a fairly uh, robust alumni there in New Jersey. Well, a guy that you just mentioned there is Scott Stevens, and you definitely don't hear his name when talking about the best defenseman of all time. Playing with a guy that's as intense as Scott Stevens, like what was that guy like off the ice? You know what? Off the ice, a very quiet individual, loved to hunt and fish, uh, loved the outdoors. On the ice, quiet, but he let his play do the talking. And he was a very intense individual and uh, didn't take any shortcuts, hard hitter, uh, you know, tough player, uh, a solid defenseman, uh, just, just a great teammate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you hear rumors and stories nowadays about him in practice where he played hard against his teammates. Was that the same way back in the day? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what, what was it like being in the playoffs in the East instead of the West? Well, it, it was a lot easier on the travel because every, every trip was a bus trip. You know, if you're playing the New York Rangers, it's a bus trip, like, you know, it's an hour trip into into the city. If you're playing on Long Island, it might be an hour and a half through traffic. Philadelphia is two hours away. Pittsburgh was the only team that you flew to. So travel wise, it was a lot different. But uh, there were some very, very strong teams 
you, you know, in the, in, in the East as well. So uh, just, just a kind of a different, I think that the, the biggest difference was the travel. Well, I was going to say in definitely with the devils and you see it, you still see it nowadays where when they play the Rangers, the Islanders or Philadelphia, a lot of their fans end up coming to New Jersey. How tough was that night after night when these teams come in and it seems like half the building is either Rangers or Islander fans. You know what? It, it adds to the whole uh, atmosphere of the game and it's no different uh, guys. If you go to any Canadian NHL city, when Toronto or Montreal is there, you will have several thousand fans wearing their, you know, uh, blue and white leaf jerseys or red and white Habs jerseys. And, you know, it provides a great atmosphere. I was just at the game last night with my wife here in Ottawa, the game that uh, Ottawa uh, won, I think it was six, four last night. And, and half the crowd was, uh, uh, was cheering for the uh, Habs. So it just adds to the whole atmosphere within the building. It really does. So it's, it's great for the players. As a player, you love that, you know, that excitement, that, that noise, that chatter. The only thing you don't like is, you know, if you're getting, you know, the boots taken to you and it's 5-1 and the other team, you know, at your home building, that's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to say those teams don't even need to be in the building and some of their fans will just show up. Well, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is too, is uh, the Toronto Montreal uh, it's, it's far easier for them to get a ticket to watch their team play in Ottawa than it is to, you know, uh, watch their team play in Toronto or Montreal. Well, especially living out West, you see that now when the Leafs come to Vancouver or Calgary, Edmonton, yeah. same thing, their fans will flock to those cities. They'll flock down to Buffalo Totally. or even Detroit to watch games. And the, now go back to Jersey. The last guy I want to talk about, and this is something my cousin, who's a diehard Devils fan, will probably love to hear stories about. You played with a rookie, Martin Brodeur, in your final season in New Jersey. Did you have any idea the career he was going to have in the NHL? No. No, you, you, have, uh, you have no idea how some of these individuals, uh, you, you know, are, are going to turn out, obviously. And, uh, you know, I think it's just uh, self-explanatory what he's done. He's uh, arguably one of the best goalies that ever played, uh, you know, along with, you know, Patrick Waugh. And, and, and those are just sort of the modern day, uh, you know, goaltenders. There's been some great, great goaltenders over the years that have played in the National Hockey League and won lots of championships. But, uh, you know, Marty Brodeur was a ter- terrific goaltender. He was the backbone of, of the defensive-minded New Jersey Devils and the style they played. So... So yeah, he fit in, uh, you know, exceptionally, exceptionally well, to say the least. Do you kind of wish that you had waited a couple more years in Jersey than you could have been on one of those tough cup teams? Well, you know, the same thing with uh, Edmonton, right? I got, uh, I get traded the year before and then they win their Stanley cup, uh, you know, so, and same thing in New Jersey, except it was two years. I got traded from New Jersey or picked up in the expansion draft. And then, you know, and then two years later, the devils win their first cup. So so, you know, obviously that was a little bit of a disappointment, but uh, it's something that, uh, that, you know, you're just glad to, you know, you're glad to be playing and, and playing your trade in another city. But, uh, you know, what might have been would have been nice to be a part of a Stanley Cup champion team for sure. So what was your honest thoughts on the Devils red and green jerseys back in the day? Because now you see them in red, black and white and they look so nice. But back in the day, they're wearing red and green they're wearing the christmas color jerseys and i'm just like 
<laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. This doesn't seem very intimidating to me. Yeah, I, I, I've got a jersey in the basement. I've got uh, kept one of the one of my jerseys uh, from the those uh, those initial colors and stuff. Uh, yeah, they're they're a little different. I, I have to admit, I like the colors better. The you know the the red and the black and the white uh, piping and stuff like that better than. But uh, you know what? It's uh, it's it's just the way it was, and uh, players were were happy to put that jersey on too to be able to you know, compete, uh, you know, back in the day as well. And now we've come to the point of the episode. I know a lot of the fans will want to know is the summer of 1992. You just came off playing a couple of years in the New Jersey Devils when you were selected by Ottawa on the expansion draft. And while you only played one year with the Senators, you can't say it wasn't a milestone in your career as you were named captain. But the one thing I want to ask is there was a story I ended up hearing where I think you were flying through Minnesota when I picked somebody you call back home and that's how you found out that the senators drafted you. Yeah. So uh, again, guys, uh, this is pre cell phone days in 1992 and I was my own agent at the time. So Lou Lamorello called me into his office uh, p- before the expansion draft. And he said, uh, uh, my wife and I had tickets to fly back to Winnipeg. That was our summer home. And, and uh, we had rented it out to one of the players for the jets at the time. And so uh, we were, we had our flight scheduled on the day of the expansion draft and Lou brought me in his office and he said, Laurie, we're, we're going to leave you, uh, unprotected in the expansion draft. He said, but, uh, I talked to Mel Bridgman, who was the general manager for the Ottawa senators and Phil Esposito, the GM of the Tampa Bay, uh, lightning, uh, the two expansion teams. And he said, uh, I don't think they're going to take you. So, you know, and I, I had signed a three-year contract. So, uh, so I was quite confident that I was going to be obviously come back to New Jersey. So anyways, uh, we jump on the aircraft the day of the, um, the, ex- the expansion draft and we fly Newark, New Jersey, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Winnipeg. So uh, we get into uh, while we were while we were flying, uh, the expansion draft took place. We get into Minneapolis. We're, you know, at gate three, getting ready to board the, uh, the flight for Winnipeg. Uh, my wife is in, in line with our three boys. And uh, I went to a bank of pay phones and called my parents. They weren't home. I called a couple of buddies. I finally got a hold of someone and said, Hey, Taylor, uh, did you hear about the expansion draft today? Did you listen? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, Did you hear my name? No, no, I didn't hear. You. I said, Okay, great. Well, listen, I'm, you know, just at the airport here in Minneapolis. We're going to be coming, we're going to be back home. Uh, later tonight, I'll see you in a couple of days. He said, okay, great. So anyways, we, we land in Winnipeg. We, uh, you know, get up, collect all our, our stuff for our kids, all our bags, luggage, all that kind of stuff. We're walking through customs. And of course you got the customs form. So before we're heading out, we pass the customs form to the custom agent and the custom agent says, Oh, Lori, you're back for the summer. Are you? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, welcome back. He says, what do you think about getting picked by the Ottawa Senators in the expansion draft? And we said, what? So that's how we found out. We walked through the guy, the gate guy told us we walked through the, uh, the gate and my former teammate, Ray Newfeld and his wife, Dawn, were waiting for us to pick us up. And he said, did you hear what happened? And we said, just 15 seconds ago, the customs guy told us. So that's how we found out. We got picked up in the expansion draft. And, and then from there, I got a flurry of calls, of course, on my phone in Winnipeg at the house from uh, Lou Lamorello and from Mel Bridgman because 
you know, then we went through a little bit of procedure. Lou said, look, uh, they weren't going to take you. And they surprised us by taking, taking you. Do you want to come back to New Jersey? And uh, then I talked to Mel Bridgman and Mel said, we're, you know, we're real happy to take you and da, 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 da. And then it was kind of like, what am I going to do? Are we going to go back to New Jersey or, uh, and then we, uh, we, we threw that decision in, in Mel Bridgman's court. We, we told Mel that we gave him a couple of days. We said, whatever you decide, we'll be okay with, but we'll be happy to go back to New Jersey because New Jersey's got a very good team. And I just signed a new contract with him. And I said, or I'd be happy to, you know, play with an expansion team. And then he called me back at my in-laws and said, we decided to keep you. So that's really how that uh, materialized. Yeah. So this was in the infamous expansion draft where Mel Bridgman's laptop battery didn't charge. I guess. They had laptops back then. Oh, they did. Yeah. There was a whole story <laughs> about this where I guess the battery wasn't charged. It wasn't charging. So Mel Bridgman had to go up a couple of times, pick somebody, towns that it was ineligible. There's a whole story about it. It's actually really crazy. Now, we're talking about the expansion year of Ottawa, and we got a chance to talk with Bruce Firestone a couple of years ago about that first inaugural night in Ottawa. And I want to talk from you, being the first captain of Ottawa Centers, what was that like October 8th, 1992, first Montreal Canadiens? Well, like it was probably more significant for someone like Bruce Firestone and, and all of that. But as a player, um, you know, that was my 14th year in the year in, in the NHL. And that turned out to be my last year. It was significant for us because all through training camp, you could sense the excitement in the Ottawa community of now being a part of this uh, group called the National Hockey League. And people were so excited to watch their team uh and and nobody were ottawa fans uh, senators fans they were boston fans montreal fans they came to watch the other team and uh you know i i will say you know uh, now like 30 years later obviously uh there's a whole group of people that have grown up to be ottawa senator fans so you know and people have made that transition if you would from you know, Boston or Montreal or, or whatever team that they had to, to be in Sens fans. Not everyone has, but a lot of people have. So all that to say is it was pretty memorable. We won that game, but you, you knew it was still going to be a long year and it turned out to be a very long year. <laughs> Cause I think if I'm not mistaken, I think the record was like 10 70 or something. If I'm not mistaken, but playing 10, 70 the- and four. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Ouch. But playing out of the old Ottawa Civic Center, and when I was out in Ottawa about five years ago, I got a chance to see the 67s play. And I had to say, I look at that arena now, and I'm like, I can't believe an NHL team played an arena that's this small. Well, it's 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 kind of like, and, and this is going to be a bit of an aberration too, next year the Arizona Coyotes are playing in a 5,000-seat arena, which, uh, it, you know, I, I dare to say it's almost unheard of. So, um, so yeah, it was uh, anything but a uh, National Hockey League franchise facility, if you would. But that's what they had to do in order to, you know, wait until they, they actually got uh, got into a new building. So now I'm just having a look here at the roster of this team and a few names pop up, obviously yourself, Mark Lamb. But Peter Sidorkowitz is one of those guys that I think Senator, especially the original Senators fans will have great memories over that first year. 
what was that like to play with a guy like Peter Sidorkowitz who came over from Hartford, has success there? Because you just you don't hear anything about him anymore. Yeah, he was coaching uh, in, in the in the junior realm here in the Ontario Hockey League. Uh, in, in, he was an assistant coach for a number of years, and I think he's. Uh, I I don't know actually where he is now, but uh, Peter played exceptionally exceptionally well for us. He saw a lot of rubber, as you can imagine that that year. And uh, you know, in my estimation, he was our all star that year. But uh, Norm McIver was one of our best players, and he was a defenseman. And then, you know, Norm was a, a small mobile defenseman and uh, played extremely well, you know, for us at the time. But uh, Pete Sidorkowicz saw a lot of rubber and played very well for us. When we had Ron talk about it on the show, and you mentioned this about how opposing fans would come to Ottawa to watch their team play. Was what was the feeling like of that room with the group? Because you always hear about expansion teams. It was kind of a hodgepodge of players. It doesn't feel anything special. Was that the same way with the expansion sense? Yeah, no question. Yeah, there, there's no question it was. It was a bunch of, uh, you know, misfits, right? Uh, and I, I think every expansion team feels that way, although it sur- sure turned out different for Las Vegas, didn't it? Uh, yeah, no the Stanley Cup final that year. Um, and George McPhee did a great job in, in, in putting together that team. But, you know, I think it's the same for Seattle, right? It's players that get unprotected or left unprotected or... They, they work out some deal for a trade and then they bring them, uh, you know, they bring them in. So players feel, okay, we don't, we don't have any history here, but we're beginning to start a history. So in that regard, it's, it's, it's pretty neat. And, uh, and that's the way we looked at it here in Ottawa. We thought it's pretty special to play in the nation's capital to get, uh, you know, NHL hockey back. The community was just so excited and that's something I'll always remember. And, and of course we, we we really liked it here and we decided to stay here in the community and and uh, we have no regrets about that except we're uh we're we're true westerners though uh, my wife and i right was it nice to be reunited with rick bonus in ottawa for your last season there yeah it was it was comfortable uh tim because we had uh, a history back in winnipeg when when rick was coaching with me and Elaine Vigneault Elaine was coaching uh, across the river in Hull uh, with the Hull Olympique. And he, he was, uh, you know, a rookie coach now uh, back then. And, and now he's been in the league for, you know, since 1992. Uh, and, and now he's a, a head coach and he has been for a number of years. So, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was nice to have Rick, uh, Rick behind the bench for sure. Now we're talking about the Sens and, Years later, when the NHL 100 Classic came to Ottawa, you were part of the alumni game at Parliament Hill. And this is something that I've got a chance to talk with a few people about on the show because I was there myself. What was that feeling like wearing the Sens sweater once again, but looking up and you see Parliament Hill in the background? Yeah, it was pretty special, uh, Taylor, to be able to do that. The fact that they put that rink right at Parliament Hill and, of course, they let you know people in the community use it and and all those kinds of things you had to book a time to skate. And just the fact that you, you probably knew it was never going to happen again in your lifetime. The fact that they've got this beautiful rink uh, facility with rink boards and all that kind of stuff, and they were going to have a game. So, so it was very nice. It was very memorable for all of us uh, who played in that game. And, and of course uh, the, uh, the game against Ottawa and Montreal down at uh, Lansdowne park, um, you know, it was, it was a very cold evening that, uh, that night, but, uh, yep, right there. Oh, there you go. You got the ticket. Excellent. So, yeah. And so, this guy didn't bring a winter jacket. 
Oh no. Yeah, my dumbass thought because I'm like, again, I'm from Vancouver Island. It doesn't snow. Well, it snows here, but it it's never drops to below <laughs> minus whatever. Something. Wow. A hoodie. You must like have froze. Like, yeah. Yeah. I was it sitting there was... going, "This is ridiculous. Why?" That that is tough. I, I yeah. Wow. Uh, it was brutal. It got so bad because like my drink froze in my hand. I was just like looking in. I'm like, oh my god, it's like drinking a slushy. <laughs> like it, people it live was in this. So cold. Told you about Ottawa, bro. Yeah. God, that's it Northern Ontario cool. right there, man. I don't know, but yeah. but no, I mean the alumni game at Parliament Hill was so cool because not only did I get a chance to see players that I grew up watching, like the Daniel Offertsons and yeah. Mike Fishers and all that stuff, but just sitting there looking up, seeing Parliament Hill, going, "Wow, like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity." Right. I I couldn't even imagine being on that ice playing with those guys doing that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me ask you this, uh, uh, Taylor, and I don't know, Tim, if you're in the same category. How did you guys turn into Ottawa Senator Senator fans? I was born in Halifax, so if I wanted to watch hockey, it was not Toronto. Okay. So it was either, yeah, it was either Boston because Halifax and Boston have a historic connection, or Montreal, and I yeah. wanted to watch good hockey at the time, so I watched the Senators. Yeah, and the Senators had a, had a very good team for about ten years. Like they were they were one of the best in the NHL. Yeah. Okay. Oh, was. I think for myself, being on the West Coast, definitely the Canucks will definitely have a big fan base out here. But I think for myself, I don't know what it is. I just, I always kind of had a soft spot for the Sens. I always loved their jerseys. Marion Hosu is my favorite player. But I oh, think yeah. the selling point what for me is my oldest brother's a Toronto fan. So I thought it was kind of <laughs> cool to have that sibling, you know, Battle of Ontario rivalry there. And doing this podcast is so cool because, again, I got to chat about the Sens and talk with some of the ex alumni like yourself and Ron Tugnet and Bruce Firestone. So it's really cool. But yeah. I always tell people what, cause people are just kind of shocked when they found I'm a sense fan, which is weird yeah. because you know, if you tell someone you're a Montreal Toronto fan, okay. Original six, we get it. Alberta it. teams, we get it. Calgary or not Calgary. Yeah. Winnipeg. Yeah. Cause they're a newest team. Ottawa just seems like, yeah, really uh, Ottawa. I'm like, yeah. Aiden, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, that's great, especially out, especially out on the on the coast, right? Is in uh, on the island there. You're on Vancouver Island, so oh, it's beautiful. It's great, and I know because I went to the game on Tuesday versus Vancouver, and yeah. the amount of Senators fans that showed up because BC has a lot of Sens fans out here, and oh, do they really? They, they do, yeah, because a lot of bloggers live out here, some couple of podcasters live out here, so it's really really cool. Okay. But yeah. The fans come out. The fans come out for sure. And you see them in their jerseys. And we're just like at Chelsea going, you're a fan? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. same thing happens in Calgary. Like Chelsea and I were walking into uh, the Saddledome there uh, when the Sens were in town. And uh, we heard some guys like, marriage, part of marriage is watching your husband's crappy team. <laughs> <laughs> and we look back and the guy's just full decked out in full Sens gear. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. Well, uh, surprisingly, Calgary is having an exceptional year this year. Oh, it's been great. I know. I have to hear about firsthand because my girlfriend's a massive Calgary fan. Oh, okay. Now, the final thing I want to talk about your hockey career, and I did not realize until I looked you up that you actually played a year for the Five Flyers in Scotland. And you're seeing now that hockey's growing in the UK, but in the mid-1990s, I couldn't even imagine how small and how like well just what was hockey like in the united kingdom at that time well they had a very narrow fan base 
and they treated it exactly like soccer. So if they uh, Fife was blue, white, and and uh, yellow, and so they had uh, uh, scarves, and and they would sing songs and do all that kind of stuff, just like in in football slash soccer. Uh, but it was a very narrow uh, and small fan base that they had. And and in Kirkcaldy, where the Fife Flyers played, uh, I, I got a call that how I got to play there is Dougie Smale, my teammate in Winnipeg for a number of years, was playing there for two years. And, and uh, he called me up just before playoffs because one of their imports got hurt. And the owner came to him and said, can you find someone to finish out the season here for the last seven weeks? Anyways, Dougie called me and... And anyways, uh, I, I checked with my boss and he said, yeah, go ahead. And so I went over there for seven weeks and played hockey and you practice at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, we played on, on a, uh, they had the curling rings on and uh, on the ice and they didn't have glass or anything, but they had the soft mesh. So when you shot the puck and it went just like over the boards, it hit the mesh. You, uh, the fans couldn't stand right there because they, They'd, they'd get the puck like if they didn't stand back and then it would slingshot back into the play. And, and so it was, it was different. It was different, but I'm, I'm told it has changed dramatically now and it's very, very good hockey. The facilities have, have improved now, you know, back, you know, back in, in the mid nineties, there, there were some like Sheffield had a very nice rink and they had like a normal uh, facility but in, uh, you know, in Kirkcaldy and the Fife Flyers, you know, their, theirs was uh, pretty, um, you know, rudimentary uh, to NHL standards. Well, it's, rinks were super uncommon in the UK when we lived yeah. there around in the very early 2000s. We were in uh, Cumbria and the closest rink of any sort was Manchester. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't uh, a lot, but lots of soccer pitches. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you definitely see it with a lot of the teams in Sweden, Finland, and Germany, where you see they have whole cheering sections. When when you were a player, was that one of the regrets that you had that you never got to experience playing in those kind of countries for those teams? No, not really. I I really have no regrets at all. I just uh, I considered it a bit of an adventure. My wife and I did with our three kids, and and uh, no, I I I wouldn't do anything uh, you know differently, other than the fact that it would have been nice to have had had my name on the Stanley Cup but uh, my life is not incomplete because it's not but it would have been a nice uh, addition if you would to uh, you know my NHL career. So to close out this interview and that's something that you brought up very early in this interview is that you're the president of the Sens alumni and right. I'd like to know so how did that opportunity come up for yourself? So uh, I, I must say in the last obviously two COVID uh, years here our, our, our group hasn't done a lot, but it's former players who played for the team, you know, such as, uh, again, Sean Van Allen, uh, Chris Neal, Mark Mathot, uh, Daniel Alfredson, Chris Phillips, some of these players who have, who have made Ottawa their home. We do a lot of things in the community to raise funds for charities to do a variety of different things. And, and so uh, Brad Marsh, who was a player with uh, myself that first year, Brad was the president, the first president of our, of our alumni. And about six years ago, Brad moved back to Philadelphia, where his wife's from. And so they asked me to take over. And so I, uh, I have taken over that role. And, and so I'm just a, 
you know, a, a figurehead to rally the troops, to play some games, to do some good things in the community, to raise some money and, uh, you know, to make it, uh, just, just a real nice thing for, um, you know, for former Ottawa Senator players who live in the community to give back to the community and, and be a part of the community. So it's, uh, it's something that, uh, it's a lot of fun to do. And, and, uh, you know, I still love to play the game. I still love to play hockey. Our, our alumni plays every Wednesday at Carleton university. So, uh, we still do that on a regular basis and, and we love to, uh, you know, have bragging rights. And I must tell you guys, I'm the leading scorer for the alumni. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, what does that get you in the community? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's oh. lots of fun. We have lots. We have lots of fun. Oh, that's yeah. awesome! Yeah, I tell I tell the guys when I score when I do something, I say there's no there's no way a 61 year old who almost has 10 grandkids should be doing the things I'm doing. So it always gets lots of uh, lots of chatter going as a result of that. So. Yeah. Well, are you kind of surprised? I mean, given that the Ottawa Senators are one of the newer franchises in the NHL, just the amount of alumni that they have that could go out and play these games, is that kind of shocking for yourselves? No, no, it's not. I think, um, you know, many of the, uh, you know, I think our numbers are a little higher than, say, New Jersey, because we talked about New Jersey earlier. But, you know, there's a lot of players that played in the NHL that live in the community that decided to stay in Ottawa and make this their home. So I don't, I don't think it's surprising or shocking for any Canadian team because, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, they have strong alumni from, uh, from teams, probably Vancouver. Well, Vancouver does as well. Not probably. I know Vancouver does. So, yeah. So it's, it's no surprise. So Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make before we close off today's interview? Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, this has been amazing. And Lori, we can't thank you enough for taking time in your schedule to do this today. Now, I'm not sure if you have any social media. If you want to plug it, you can, but we're definitely interested in you plugging the Hockey Ministries International. Okay, excellent. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug, Sanscast. I hope you've enjoyed it because, believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. You can find us on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network. You can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter at Third Line Plugs, our Twitter handle. Tim is at M91HoneyBadger. I'm at GreatWhiteGipster, G-R-8-W-I-T-E-Gipster. If you want to choose an email to give us some feedback on today's interview with Lori Boschman, choose an email, thirdlineplugs, at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jensen. Go Sens, guys. <laughs>